welcome to the most interesting people in higher education. I'm Lee Bradshaw, and this is a Noodle production. I've spent my entire career collaborating with some of the most influential campus leaders. Together, we've transformed higher ed. In this series, I'll take you on never-heard-before journeys from the narrative arcs of the people evolving some of the most respected institutions in the world. You'll get an insider perspective from the mission-driven administrators, influential professors, devoted researchers, and others that are part of the highly interesting cadre of people transforming higher ed. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the second episode of the show. As our second guest, we were lucky enough to host Dr. Michael Sorrell, the president of Paul Quinn College in Dallas, Texas. For those that have heard Michael speak or seen him on stage, you know he's an electric presence and one that remains deeply tied to his mission and his university's mission. Honestly, I could have gone on for hours with Michael. It was amazing. But we managed to pack a lot into the interview in less than an hour. And when we discussed his leadership and why he's done so well at Paul Quinn, he opened up a little bit about what's worked so well. I'm better in spaces where people give me the freedom to innovate, right? And the freedom to find the fights that are worth fighting. And of course, he learned leadership lessons young while in Chicago. This lesson in particular stood out. It's so critically important that so many people have no understanding of right now. And he told me, he said, son, Every man has a hustle. Every man has a hustle. He's like, understand the man's hustle, you understand the man. You understand the man, you can yeah. lead the man. And I learned pretty quickly what that leadership has resulted in. Better graduation rates and an evolution of Paul Quinn College. All right, so in our quest to get it right, we understand sometimes you get it wrong. And you just learn your lesson and then you pick it up and you get better. Right? And we're obsessive about getting better. I have a feeling you all are going to like this interview a lot. So without further ado, here it is with Dr. Michael Sorrell, the president of Paul Quinn College. So today we have Michael Sorrell, the president of Paul Quinn College. This guy has been on TED Talks, keynotes at South by Southwest, shares the stage with Lee Bollinger at a New York Times event. And he, he graciously agreed to join us as the second guest of the podcast, which for me is nothing short of amazing. This podcast is about the people of higher ed. Uh, I think it's going to be really hard as we talk to, to Michael without, to talk about him without talking about Paul Quinn. Michael, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you for the invitation. Of course. It's, it's honestly, uh, it's, it's our honor. You're, you're all about the phrase, we over me. And I wrote this opening uh, before we joined Zoom, and I actually see it on your shirt right now. For the, for the people listening, they can't see it, but he has a shirt on that says, We Over Me. But you kind of are Paul Quinn, uh, and I know that you might not like the way that sounds, but is it fair to say that, you know, you're the longest acting president there? You've done a lot, man. Like, we're going to go through that. Are you Paul Quinn? No, that to me, that would be disrespectful to the fact that the institution's almost 150 years old, that it was founded by the AME Church. It's like, this is just my season mm. of being at Paul Quinn. Like, it's my season to shepherd the institution, to be a good steward of the faith that people put into it. And frankly, it's an honor 
to have the opportunity to to work on behalf of the people I love. But no, the 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 school has been through too much for too long for any one person to say I yeah. am yeah. the institution. All right, so let's let's talk about you. I'm gonna I'm gonna read some stuff that's listed. It's all public knowledge. So let's get all the stuff that we all know about you out of the way. And then I'm going to, yeah. I really want to dive into to what makes you, you. But you were an undergrad uh, and you did your master's at Duke, your doctorate at Penn, law firms in Dallas, and then no big deal. You were part, you were a special assistant, the executive office of President Clinton. And all of a sudden, you're, you know, you're trying to buy the Memphis Grizzlies. You're doing all these things. And you get a phone call that says, you want to be the president of Paul Quinn. And you've been doing that for a little while now. 14, it'll be 14 years in March. 14 years. Uh, and again, longest acting president of Paul Quinn in almost 150 years. You were named Fortune's List of World's Greatest Leaders. Uh, you're the three-time recipient of the HBCU Male President of the Year. And you led Paul Quinn to be the HBCU of the Year, HBCU Student Government Association of the Year, HBCU Business Program of the Year. I mean, come on, man. What do you do all day, right? Like you just you just hanging out, just hanging out, drinking healthy shakes with full of nutrients. Right, uh, right. No, it, it's you know I think um, first of all I'm extraordinarily grateful that I you know I found an institution that fits me, right? I mean, at my core, I am an activist, right? I mean, I went to law school because I idolized Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston and <clears throat> the way that they took the law and used it to transform a society. I am someone with this very, very strong sense of justice and right. And I just mm -hmm. think people deserve better. And so I, I, I'm better in spaces where people give me the freedom to innovate, right? And the freedom to find the fights that are worth fighting. Um, I wouldn't be a great president at an institution that majors in the status quo, right? Mm. Frankly, I, yeah. that would be a waste of my time and my talents. And, and it would be a betrayal of what the institution wants. Paul Quinn allows us to fight for the people we believe in, that we think need voices. And it, it gives me the ability to just unleash my creativity. Uh, you know, I never knew I was creative, hmm. right? I, I knew I was a little bit rebellious, uh, but I never knew that I was creative because I thought creative people were artists. I thought that they painted. I thought that they wrote poetry. I thought they did. And I, I don't have those talents. You know, I can't paint. I love poetry, but I'm never going to write poetry. Uh, you know, I can't even, you know, the spoken word. I'm like, yeah, I can get up and ramble, right? But I can't make it work. And, but what I am is a person that produces an inordinate amount of ideas constantly and the idea is because of my internal pruning mechanism generally are ideas that can be implemented at a high level and my challenge is reining myself in right because 
I can be overwhelming, you know, and those ideas can be overwhelming. And I, and I acknowledge that, right? Like, because I think, I think you have to be willing to acknowledge your good points and your bad points and acknowledge how your good points, if left unchecked, can become bad. So I just, I think for leadership purposes, it's great to find institutions that speak to you um, and that you can speak for. You said you're not a poet, but I feel like that was kind of poetic right there. So we'll just, maybe that's your, maybe that's your next step. You didn't think you'd be a president until you got the phone call. I, I love that story. I, I mean, just for a second, I, I watched you speak at South by Southwest a couple of years ago. I remember just thinking like, that guy gets it. So to be here, by the way, just to say like, it's really cool to talk to you. I mean, it probably came out in the introduction, um, but I, I got to say it again. But how did you get here? Right. Like you, you grew up, I believe, in Chicago. When you were, you know, an adolescent kid. You weren't thinking about being president. You weren't thinking about being a president until you got the phone call. So between well, no, that, and that phone call, how do how did you get here? Well, so I think there's a couple things to to know. One is if you come from a black family with roots in the South someone was in education, hmm. right? I mean, if they were people who were college educated and someone was an educator. So for me, my grandmother was a teacher. I had a plethora of cousins who were teachers. Uh, you know, my sister is a teacher. My younger sister's a teacher. So, I mean, I grew up. It was always about education people. anyway. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. I never planned on going into education, right? Like it was, it was the furthest thing from my mind. I mean, when I grew up, people expected me to wind up as an elected official, right? I, I oftentimes think, have thought about my career as, you know, growing up, I thought I'll be a big city mayor because you grew up in Chicago and you're attracted to service. I mean, how do you not want to be the bear mm -hmm. of Chicago, right? How do you not want to be a big city mayor? I thought I'd be a big city mayor. Um, I thought I would make a lot of money. I thought that I would have a turn as maybe a senator, right? Got a little older and the public service component was always there. When I was a sophomore or junior in college, I met Janetta Cole, who at that time was the president mm. of Spelman. Spelman and yeah. she, she just, She's the most elegant and regal person I've ever met. And, but the way that I got to meet her is really just pure happenstance, right? Because so much of my life is just, you know, being present, right? Like just hmm. blessings that you just can't necessarily plan for. So I'm just sort of cruising through the student union on my way back from basketball practice. And a buddy of mine says, hey, someone canceled out, why don't you come have dinner with us with Janetta Cole? And I was like, I don't have to go to dinner in the cafeteria? I was like, okay, that's a win. Take that said, offer, yeah. And we're gonna have dinner with the president of Spelman. And you know, I was 18, maybe 19 years old. So, you know, full 18, 19 year old triflingness is about to be apparent, right? And right. the next thought in my mind is after the free dinner at somewhere other than the cafeteria, was the fact that she was the president of an all women's college that was full of beautiful black women, right? And in my mind, I was like, there is no downside yeah. to yeah. having a relationship with the president of Spelman, right? Like, so 
I'm thinking free food mm-hmm. and dating opportunities down the road, right? Like I'm not thinking about networking for you know business, none of that. Like I'm being shallow, all right? Could you, and could you the irony of it is my wife is actually an alum of Spelman, all right? Which didn't come through Janetta, but obviously there was some internal mechanism that told me Spelman was gonna be important in my future. But I, I would go to dinner and she's extraordinary. Just completely blew me away. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, if this is what HBCU presidents are like, I'm gonna add this to my list. I said, this will be my final career, right? I'll just, when I'm done, when I've made a bunch of money, when I'm done with public service, I'll be an HBCU president. Now. One of the things to know about me is it never occurs to me that I should follow the well-worn path to any place. So when I was a lawyer, I thought maybe I'll be a partner in a law firm, but it never occurred to me that I'd be a partner in a law firm because I would be an associate for eight or nine years straight and take the traditional path. So it didn't occur to me to be a college president that I should go get a doctorate or that I should even work in education. I just assumed that my life accomplishments would merit me an opportunity to do the job. Mm. Now, turns out that was true, but I was 25 years, 20, 25 years off when that would happen. And um, I I just thought, you know, I was like, this is kind of cool. So then I go to, as luck would have it, I go to graduate school. Um, I really planned on going to law school, but I took a public policy course that my major advisor talk because I took all the courses he offered and it was a really interesting course and I displayed a talent for the things in that area and he said to me he said men like you don't typically go to public policy school so they go to law school they go to business school they become elected officials they become captains of industry but you've got an unusual conscience that I think would this would be interesting. I'm not advocating. He's like, I know you're going to law school. He said, and you should go to law school. He said, but let's take a look at this. So I um, I go to public policy school and I get a part-time job as a vendor for the Durham Bulls, the minor league mm-hmm. baseball team. Yeah. Right, from the Bull Durham thing. Yeah, I was going to say, that's where the movie title comes from. Huh? That's where the movie title comes from. Class yeah. A theme. And it was the best. And I, I found that literally it was just an ad in the Durham Herald, right? Durham Sun Herald, I think, was maybe the paper at the time. And you circled it with a marker and it's just like the movies, right? Yeah, I just, I called up and, you know, listen, they paid you in cash, right? At the end of the night. And, you know, so I walked up and down the stands on popcorn, peanuts, and Cracker Jacks, right? And, uh, I had my sack of popcorn, peanuts, and Cracker yeah. Jacks. And, you know, I would, I used to pitch in Little League, and so I could always throw. And, you know, I just got to be popular because I could, you know, people could hold their hand anywhere and I could hit it, right? And so, that experience. Put you on the mound at that point. Like, well, trust me, I, that sun has set, right? Uh, but midway through the summer, the guy who ran, the vending operations got caught stealing. And so the owners of the franchise put me in charge of the vending operation, Yeah. right? And so I, I loved it. And at that point I said, you know what? It would be fun to own and operate 
not a baseball team, but because I love, I was a college basketball player, I love basketball. I was like, I want to own and operate an NBA franchise. So in my mind, I thought I'll have three real terms in my career. I will be a public servant, like I'll be a big city mayor, maybe a U.S. senator. Um, and the foundation of all this was I'll make a bunch of money somewhere along the line, right? I'll own and operate an NBA franchise. And when I'm done with all of that, I'll get to be an HBCU president. That's how I saw it. And so I moved to Dallas after law school and I meet these great, great people who were alums of Paul Quinn. Some of them were my fraternity brothers. Some of them were people who played basketball and I met them playing basketball. And they were really good to me. They welcomed me into their families and made a stranger in a strange land feel welcome. So I'm one of those people, if you're ever good to me or you're good to my causes, I say thank you. you know? And I started giving money to the school. I would volunteer at the school. I was an adjunct professor for one semester at the school. You know, just would do things that were you know, my way of showing gratitude. And so along the line, when the school changed the last stable president, not stable in terms of, you know, mental capacity, but just length of service, they, uh, I thought I should be president. And I uh, don't know why I thought I should be president. Don't know what made me think I was qualified to be president, but I just thought- How's the time? Yeah, now's the time. And so I uh, I called the search firm and said, hey, Michael Sorrell, I think I should be president of Paul Quinn. And <laughs> the search firm rightfully was a bit dismissive. And we, I'm sharing the printer with my son, so. It's all good. Um, We're, it's it's yeah. the time of COVID, Nothing, uh, nothing's perfect. And that's why it's so much better. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Authentic times. I suspect he'll come cruising in here in a second. <laughs> Looks like we are dealing with Mesopotamia and the Fertile Crescent. What uh, what grade is your son in? He's in fifth grade. Hello, <laughs> This hey, is man. him right here. Say hi, son. Hello. Hello. How's fifth grade? It's good. <laughs> <Hope> <laughs> <you can't answer. laughs> yeah. he's, he's a great kid. Thank you, son. <laughs> so, <laughs> People listening, I just I just watched uh, Michael Sorrell's uh, son uh, palm his dad's hand in gratitude for letting him print during this interview, and I got to tell you, it was the most wholesome wholesome thing I've seen on Zoom this year. So, to your son, thank you. <laughs> no, no, you're welcome. At all times, I am a dad, right? <laughs> like so, we uh, I am a present father. So, uh, but I um I so. The lady sort of dismisses me, right? She's like, whatever. Yeah, She's yeah. like, have you ever worked in education? Have you ever it's like, no, I haven't done any of this stuff. And she's just like, no, thank you. This isn't really how it works, pal. All right. So she sends me on my way. And then she makes some phone calls and discovers that I'm probably someone that you should take seriously. So she calls me back. And she's like, she interviews me. She's like, you know what? She's just I like, was thinking, and I just think that maybe you are the perfect person. <laughs> well, no, she was just sort of, she's like, you're fascinating. I don't see how this will work for them, but there's something about you that you should talk to the chair of the board. So I go talk to the chair, and I'm 35 at the time, right? Like 35, no education experience. 
And the chair of the board is a bishop in the AME church. And, you know, they're very like protocol driven and, you know, very, very proper. And I'm very irreverent, right? I'm sort of production over protocol. And so he's just sort of like, what makes you think you can do this job? And, you know, the, the irreverence in me says, look, I know what this is supposed to look like. I said, and with all due respect, sir, you know, this isn't Harvard. You don't need an academician, right? You need a salesman. You need someone that's going to fight for your school and fight for your students. You, yeah, you need someone with a strong moral compass. And this, I was like, so you, if you don't hire me, don't make the mistake of not hiring someone that you need. So he was just sort of like, you're just too much, right? Like, so sends me on my way. And I get mad, you know, because I, you know, I'm competitive. And, you know, and at that point, I probably was nowhere near as humble as I should have been, right? And I think for all of us, there's a point in our leadership journey where we have so much success at an age where your confidence mistakes the root of your success. Because lots of people think when they succeed, it's because of them, right? That they're brilliant and they're wonderful and they're amazing and that it's all about them. And when you mature, what you come to realize is you're but the vessel for these experiences for other people, yes. There's something about you that allows you to be successful, but there's so much that allows you to be successful that's external to you, right? Like it's the Lord smiling on you. It's good fortune. It's other people being invested in the journey with you. And so what you have to hope for is that as you're on your leadership journey and you're making the mistakes that youth and arrogance will sometimes, or, and frankly, success will sometimes produce that you don't destroy your true path, right? And so for me, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I go home, I step all night and I create this you know, blueprint for excellence. I send it to the search firm. She sends it to the chair of the board. He calls me back and he says, look, you're not gonna get this job, but how'd you like to have a seat on our board? He said, and, you know, when a job comes up, you'll get the experience that you need and you'll be a legitimate candidate. Now, you know, I don't like losing and I certainly don't like consolation prizes, but I had a mentor who was really, I was thankful that he spoke truth to me when he said, listen, said, being on a college board at 35 is a big deal. He said, you know, sit back on your ego and learn. And so I did that, I sat on the board and it was a really humbling experience because there were like three or four presidents in four years and no one thought about giving me a chance. Like I'm sitting there at that table, I'm on the board and time after time after time, like, you know, they would have to make a change and no one thought about giving me an opportunity. And so, you know, it was really very, very humbling. And finally I got to a place where I was just sort of like, this isn't, this isn't for me. 
right? This isn't for me. I um, and I'd had some other experiences, right? Like, I mean, I was in a period of really intense self-examination, you know, like I was going through a divorce. Um, I was trying to figure out what was my place in the world going to be because it was frustrating. It's frustrating to to have ambition. It's frustrating to have what you think is talent and it just isn't all coming together. You can't find your place. And I think lots of young professionals have this. I certainly know lots of minority professionals have this. And what you have to pray for, what you have to hope for is that you have people in your corner who help you to keep going, right? To, to put it into perspective for you. That's the support I, team. Yeah, the, the, your support team. Yeah, your support team. And for oh, me, I had yeah. this extraordinary mother, right? Um, who came to visit me and we had just one of the most important conversations of my life. And, you know, the conversation involved, you know, me, just to be honest about it, breaking down in tears, you know, because I couldn't figure out why I wasn't having the level of professional success that I thought that I, I should. And, and this happened in my first three years. So this was before Paul Quinn and all of that, right? Like, cause my mom passed before I got to be president at Paul Quinn. And, but she, she level set things for me. She gave me perspective and that perspective I was able to draw upon. Um, but not to get away off track, but so what mm-hmm. happened is- That's how it started though, right? So you're, for, for a tangent for a moment, what were your, were your parents the reason, are they the reason you are the way you are today? Or did they, did they start that path and then watch you? What was, what was their uh, I, to get I, you I there? Think, That's how it all began. Yeah, I think I am absolutely who my mother and grandmother programmed me to become. Mm. Right? I mean, yeah. now, I was very fortunate. I grew up in a family structure where my parents were married literally until I went to college, right? At some point in college, they got a divorce. My grandparents were married for almost 60 years. My aunt and uncle were married for 50 plus years until my uncle died. My godparents were married for, I don't know. I think they were married for almost 50 years until 40 years until my godfather died. I mean, so I had these amazing like models of, of maleness, right? My grandfather, who I just adored, played Negro League baseball. He was six foot, six foot one, was strapping man, right? right? So physicality and strength I got from my grandfather. Um, sort of being cool and funny and all those other things, those mm-hmm. to the extent that I am any of that came from my godfather and my uncle. Uh, my dad gave me wisdom in a very different way because my dad never went to college right he grew up in a single parent home in new orleans where they were poor and he you know he had to hustle for everything and he taught me about hustle he taught me about the streets right not from the standpoint of being a thug or dealing drugs or anything like that what he taught me was what i would argue it's so critically important that so many people have no understanding of right now. And he told me, he said, son, every man has a hustle. Every man has a hustle. He's like, you understand the man's hustle, you understand the man. Mm-hmm. You understand the man, you can yeah. leave the man, right? 
He said, and I need you to understand this as well. He said, you are not of the street. You're not from the street. Because my parents built this incredibly financially successful restaurant business. So I grew up with the best of everything, right? And he said, you're not from the street. You don't know the street. He said, he said but this is really important. He said, you better, the street better know you and you better know someone there. He said, because there will come a point in your life where those relationships that are what some people would consider further down the ecosystem, he said, I would argue they are the primary place in the ecosystem. He said, but those relationships are going to save you or save someone you love. You can't make right. those on a whim, right? You can make lots and lots of shallow relationships quickly, but those those everlasting ones that you either because have you to have be, to be you have to be authentic yeah right like real recognizes real so mm. you know you can't fake it i mean and what my son is starting to understand now um as we travel the path of him being an athlete is we'll go places and he's just constantly amazed at all the people that i know that you know he doesn't see when I take him to my speeches. He doesn't see necessarily when we're on the camp. Like he doesn't see when we look at the pictures in Fortune magazine or any of the other awards and things like that. These are people who are some of my favorite people. They are salt of the earth people. They are people that when I see them, it pains me not to be able to give them hugs now, right? Like, cause it's just, and so, like, you know, you learn that and yeah. you learn that it, it takes all walks of life. Like you can't ever allow yourself to be separated from every aspect of this society because yeah. to do so, you know, it, it renders you ineffective. Mm -hmm. and, and that's part, and let's be honest, that's part of what's going on in our society today is you have people making decisions for people who don't know them, don't know their walk, and who come to places of disrespect and disregard and arrogance because they think people aren't better than they are. And I use that in quotes, right? Better than they are because they didn't work hard enough or they weren't as smart as them or some other BS, right? No, man, like some of you wanna think that you're self-made when you started on third base. Right, I don't respect oh, your How do you, so how do you, but how do you introduce awareness or do you introduce awareness to those that started on third? Does it matter? Or do you, do, are you, is it more about understand, is it about understanding who's on what base or just understanding their bases and then not actually identifying that? Like where, as a leader, how do you think about uh, the decision to tell somebody what you understand that is true about them and, or just let them figure it out. Like, how do you, and I'm also noticing like, there's a parallel here for you. Like you're, you're raising a fifth grader. You're also 14 years in of raising 18th graders. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm raising that. I'm just trying to support what their families have done. Okay. Right? Like it's, okay. I, I think the reality of it is and some of this comes from something that 
my coaches told me when I was a sophomore in high school. And it became apparent that I was going to be a college basketball player. And they told me, they said, listen, <clears throat> never believe your own press clippings. On the days that the press says that you're terrible, you were never that bad. And on the days where they tell you that you were great, you were probably never really yeah. that good, right? The yeah. truth is in the middle, stay level, stay even keel. And I think what we tend to see happen now is that people are drinking their own Kool-Aid and believing their own press clippings. And it's one of the things that infuriates me. I mean, listen, I believe we over me. I believe loving something greater than yourself. I believe that you should leave places better than you found them. And I really believe that none of this is about me, right, at all. Like, I am blessed to lead in this moment of time. And my job is to leave whatever I have access to better than it was when I got there. And I am continuing the work of true giants. Because you know what? I never picked cotton. I, I never had to take the Underground Railroad. I never felt master's whip on my back, right? There were people who made extraordinary sacrifices. I, 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 I wasn't an abolitionist, right? I, I wasn't someone that built institutions to educate free slaves. I, I wasn't part of that rebellion. So, what I'm doing is I'm standing on those shoulders and then on the shoulders of my family, of, of you know, my mother and grandmother who told me repeatedly that I was to become a leader, that I was to find a way to give hope to the hopeless and a voice to the voices who poured into me. Like I am a product of all of that. And so at the end of the day, my job is to never forget that to never buy into my own successes, to keep looking for ways to improve, improve the institutions that I am assigned the stewardship of. And, but I think too many people have forgotten that. I mean, and not to turn this into a political discussion, but I don't understand people who act like there's a choice between the constitution and a sitting president and the whims of a sitting president, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I was telling you this before, I'm a government major, I have a master's in public policy, I have a law degree, right? Like, it might not be fashionable to say what I'm about to say, but like, I have deep love for the, the rule of order and for democracy. And I don't think it's perfect, but it was never designed to be perfect because it's designed to be a vessel to represent the people, right? And I understand the tyranny of the majority right? Like you can't be the product, the descendant of enslaved people and not understand that there's a tyranny of the majority that sometimes gets things wrong. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that because you are someone who's just mad because you lost, that you burned down the system. It doesn't mean that people enable you, right? Like it means you lost, right? Now, we're two weeks out from learning that that tactic doesn't work though, right? Once- well, But why has it even been entertained, hmm. right? That, that's sort of my thing. Like, how is it that you, you stand on the shoulders of people? Like, to me, I know lots of people love Kennedy. 
And I know lots of people love Reagan. Lots of people love Barack Obama. Lots of people love other. I am so impressed with the leadership model of Lyndon Johnson, right? How he made the most difficult decision knowing the price that was going to be paid, but knowing it was the right thing to do, and he did it. None of these guys passed the Lyndon Johnson test. Lyndon Johnson and test. That's a problem, right? That's a problem. How do you make sure that you pass the Lyndon Johnson test? Because you can only control yourself. Well, and that's true. You're, I mean, you're a, you're a leader, right? You're clearly one of the the more notable leaders in higher ed, do you pass the Lyndon Johnson test? I think the first step to passing the Johnson test is to never think that you pass it, right? Is that you keep working every day to pass it, you know, because that, the minute you I think you that answer passing, means that you do pass the test, by the way. That was, well, I mean. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I just want to get it right. Yeah. You know, I just want yeah. to get it right for the people who trust me to get it right. And I'm, I'm never going to be a guy that gets invited to all the cocktail parties, right? Because I don't have the patience for that anymore, right? Because I look at, you know, I look at people with all these resources and I just wonder why they don't do more. And I wonder why there's so many committees to state the obvious, right? And it's always people with the greatest amount of resources and luxury that think they have the greatest luxury of all, which is time. Hmm. Because, you know, I look at the families that my students come from, the fact that 85% of my students are from Pell Grant backgrounds. Yeah. They don't have four years for me to sit on a committee to figure out how to improve something. No. No like every day is a day that they are left in conditions that I think we can do better, you know, then. And so I um, I think you have to always keep pushing yourself to do better and to do more. So we're technically over time, but I'm not gonna stop because I, I um, this is incredible. Your, your institute, to take, it, to take it back to that Pell Grant point though, mm -hmm. I, uh, I saw somewhere Paul Quinn at one point was at a 20, 21% graduation rate. No, listen, is that I got right? here, it was a 1% graduation rate. 21? No, we were at a 1% when I got here. Oh my, okay. We've That's... raised it into the 20s. We have come up over 20% in the four. In fact, this last class, the class that we're currently in their cohort, they project to somewhere between a 35 and 40% graduation. Incredible. And, you, how, and what percent are on Pell Grants? 85. And Pell Grant for those listening, that's below the poverty line. Yeah, that, that means that you come from the lowest socioeconomic strata in the country. You know, 70 plus percent of our students every year um, get zero expected family contributions. Okay, so let's talk about Paul Quinn for a second. I mean, because mm -hmm. I know you didn't, you said no that you are Paul Quinn, and it was it was it wasn't a test, but it was the uh, it was the opening line. How did you do that, and how did how did you all do that? I guess is a really the way to put it. I mean, you I know the story about you shut the football down football team down the first year. You turned it into a um, into a farm in the middle of a food desert. Oh my God, that like how'd you do that? But 
when they when they talk about Paul Quinn in 50 years, what will they say got you here in 14? Like how how did you do it? And what what do we not know? Well, the first thing is, you know, we're always unafraid to fail. Right. So in our quest to get it right, we understand sometimes you get it wrong. And you just learn your lesson and then you pick it up and you get better, right? And we're obsessive about getting better. So uh, let me tell you this. The first thing I don't know is how you only have a 1% graduation rate, right? Like, like I, don't, I don't know how you do that, okay? <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it is a combination of bad admissions processes with a, well, no, let me, let me say that differently. It's a product of losing your way. Like, you start out with a noble way. Like you start out with this noble idea that we're open enrollment, that we're gonna yeah. give people a chance, but you still have to have a screening mechanism. And, and I would tell you, and this is just my estimation, lots of people may not agree with this, but I think it's incredibly expensive to be open enrollment, right? Because you have the level of supports that you have to provide for people who come to you with that really wide disparity in preparedness. And so what we did was we just said, everything is about improving our outcomes. And we're gonna tell the truth about our outcomes. And you know, there were some periods and, and it took longer, I think, than I would have, well, I know it, it took longer than I would have liked because we had to fight the accreditation issue. Right, and we never lost our accreditation, but we did things that people hadn't done before. So, you know, all the, all the higher ed community ever knew was when you are in the place we were in, it means X. Right. And so, you know, they tell students that, they tell their families, people speak badly about you, sort of all of these things. And in reality, you know, I get it. I get it, but that wasn't our story, right? We were gonna take a different path, but people don't tend to believe things they've never seen before. And they certainly don't believe that they come from places they've never thought about before. And which is an irony because the reality of it is in the history of man, revolutions start from below. You know, the king never overthrows himself, right? right? Like, why would you look for innovation from the people who are on top? It's not where it comes from. And so, you know, I think- um, So Paul Quinn's a revolution. No, I think we're absolutely a revolution. We're a movement, mm -hmm. we're a revolution because we, we stand for this idea that the little guy can win. And the little guy will win. Like we're gonna win. No question in my mind, right? Like we're already winning. I mean, like we, like when you think about it from this perspective, when you talk about innovative institutions. You have to talk about what we do, right? I mean, we created our own form of higher education. There were no urban work colleges until we created them, right? I mean, and when people really dissect this thing, to see a place raise their graduation rate, because we're going to raise it by well more than 40%, right? I, I don't know this for sure. And this is something we'll have to research but I'd be fascinated to know what the record is for improvement of the graduation rate right across the history of higher ed.
because we're taking aim at it. Like we're not taking aim at it because our egos dictate it. I just think if people send you their students and their kids, you should graduate them, right? And I think if the great schools graduate 90% of their students, why shouldn't we? Right? Why shouldn't we? And it is hard. It is hard because you have to deal with the economic uncertainty. You have to deal with the scarcity mindset. You have to deal with the fact that, you know, imposter syndrome issues. You have to deal with trauma. You have to deal with all this stuff that has nothing to do with whether or not you can do calculus, right? It impacts how you do calculus. It doesn't mean that you don't have the innate intellectual capacity, but you got to deal with all that. And we deal with it all head on. And every institution doesn't do that. I read a, it was a tweet actually uh, that said, if you don't have imposter syndrome at any point, you're probably the imposter. Uh, and I, I always liked that, especially when, you know, when, as one does, feels a little outside of their comfort zone. It's a little reassuring to think yeah. that maybe, maybe that's okay. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's to quote the, uh, the great philosopher from Dos Equis, the most interesting man in the world, right? <laughs> you have to stay thirsty, my friend. Right? Like, so you have to stay hungry and you have to stay humble, but you have to stay hungry. And we're starving. We're starving every day at Paul Quinn. And if you aren't starving, you shouldn't be here. Yeah. You gotta want it, right? You have to want it. So last question, and this is the, mm -hmm. this is the, uh, the question that we're going to use in this in this podcast um what do you want people to know about you that they don't know yet Ooh. i didn't i didn't tell you this one in advance yeah no I just mean, i'll give you a second to i feel like there's so much content out there on me that i'm trying to think what might people mm. not know i mean i'll give you a funny one People probably would don't know and would be shocked to find out that at six foot four, I have a fear of heights. Right. Uh, so that's is sort of because you're six foot four and you don't want to go up any higher. I don't know. I don't know. But if you put me on a roof of a building or you put me on a bridge, I am not going close to the edge. Right. Now on a more substantive take, I would tell you that. I work every day as if I have to earn the trust and the faith of people who have been continuously let down their whole lives by the institutions that purported to love them and care for them and service them. And I take all of this personally. Mm. I take when students leave school, I take that personally. When we make bad admissions decisions, I take that personally. I take each failure personally and each success I think is more about my colleagues than any one particular thing that I have done. I don't stop and smell the roses very well, which you know is probably bad, but um, like I just, things have to change, right? Like we can't have the majority of public school students in this country 
living lives of poverty. Right? Things just have to change. And I don't, I really don't worry about what my next job is going to be because I love this one. And I think this is an honor and I don't make decisions based on what I'm gonna to do tomorrow. I only make decisions what's in the best interest of the people I serve today. Beautiful. That's it. Well, I am very honored you were here. Uh, I've been looking forward to speaking with you for a couple of years and to have you on and recorded and to go through this with you has just been uh, personally very meaningful, but also for everybody that listens to this to better understand you, uh, I think it's just better for the world. Maybe, just maybe, we'll inspire a couple folks to become more like you than some other folks walking around these days that we've, we've seen in the media. Michael, thank you for being here. Um, I, I'm going to have to catch up with you in a year or two. Let's do this again. Uh, I want to hear about it. I am already excited about what the next phase of Paul Quinn's growth is and your growth. So thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. It's been an honor and good luck with the success of the podcast. You know, Everything new is an incredibly sensitive and personal endeavor. So I, um, I know what that's like, and I just wish you incredible success. And that's our show. Thank you for listening to the most interesting people in higher education. This listening experience is brought to you by Noodle, the network of online higher education programs. Our mission is to lower the cost of higher ed through a pursuit of excellence in online learning. And make sure to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. See you next time.